Sandberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome to the show Professor Tanya Maria Golash-Boza. She has a new book titled Before Gentrification, The Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. She is the executive director of the University of California's Washington Center. That's the center for uh, the University of California in Washington, D.C. And she is a professor of sociology as well. You took over the position as director of the University of California's Washington Center, I believe, uh, a year ago. Was that was that not right? even yeah gen- in January? So just a few months in. So t- before we get to the question of a race gap and a wealth gap and the gentrification of cities and so many of the divides in the United States today, give us a brief description, if you would please, of what the Washington Center is. Absolutely. So we bring undergraduates from the nine UC campuses to DC to engage in experiential learning, which means that they do internships, but they take classes here as well that kind of help them reflect on the internships and learn about DC. So we're kind of like a domestic study abroad program, if you will. Is DC representative of the various uh, issues and fights and divisions in the United States today, or is the, is Washington singular in so many different ways that it's not really representative of the issues and struggles that face our cities? I think it's very similar to other cities. The major difference is that the federal government is here, so some issues are exacerbated. Washington, D.C. has often been a testing ground for federal policy, so sometimes things might happen here first, or they might try and see if they can do something here and then uh, and then expand it nationally. So it's very similar to other cities, but just sometimes a little bit, some of the things are a little exacerbated here. One of the questions that I try to avoid generally, try to avoid asking authors is the, uh, how did you find this story or who brought you the story or why did you want to write this book, at least at the beginning, but you actually have this very poignant description that answers the question, why did you write this book or why did you want to write this book personally? And I would appreciate it if you would read that to our listeners. Uh, It is from the introduction. I have some other pieces, obviously, specifically from other parts of the book, but I found it very poignant and very telling. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that with us. Absolutely. In 1959, Mark's grandparents purchased a two-story brick, 2,500-square-foot row house with large windows and a finished basement in tree-lined Mount Pleasant. They were among the thousands of African Americans who achieved the American dream of home ownership in the 1950s. Mark's mother grew up in this sunlit and spacious three-bedroom home with ample space for backyard cookouts. She graduated from high school and secured a well-paying job with the federal government. She raised her three children in this home, who in turn raised their children there. In 1992, Mark was arrested and the federal government seized the house his grandparents had purchased, alleging Mark was using the property in his drug selling operation, although he had not lived there for years. His mother was able to buy the house back from the federal government, but now she had a mortgage. When she took out a second mortgage to make repairs to the home, the payments ballooned. She fell behind. Seven years after Mark was incarcerated, 
His mother lost the house she had inherited from her parents. Today, the home is valued at $1.5 million. The story of Mark's family was the impetus for this book. Or perhaps more accurately, my reflections on how my life took a different path from Mark's compelled me to write this book. What was the different path? Well, Mark and I um, grew up in this in similar neighborhoods, um, but when, when he, around the time that he was incarcerated is the time that I went to college. So although we grew up um, in similar neighborhoods and faced similar circumstances in terms of the schools that we attended and the violence that was in our communities, um, I was able to go away to college and forge a completely different path for myself. But Mark spent 23 years behind bars. We are speaking with Tanya Maria Goash Boza. Professor Boza is the author of a new book. She has five previous books, this one titled Before Gentrification. You use the phrase racial capitalism in the book. Could you explain that to us, please? Yes, certainly. Capitalism is simply a system where an economic system where the primary goal is profit making. So everything everything in our economic system is is designed around um, the possibility of making a profit. Um, Now, in racial capitalism, which is the kind of capitalism we have in the United States, the extent to which you can make a profit is highly dependent on race. And the housing market is just a perfect example of that. If you buy a house in a white neighborhood versus buying a house in a black neighborhood, the house in the white neighborhood will increase in value more rapidly than the house in the black neighborhood, simply because um, people make decisions based on race in terms of where they want to live. There's more there's a stronger market for the houses in the white neighborhood, so they'll increase in value more quickly than houses in the black neighborhood. You discuss in significant detail in your book, uh, Before Gentrification, white flight. Can you describe this phenomenon and whether it is still occurring in the United States? Yeah, so white flight basically is a, it describes a time period when white families fled cities what happened in Washington, D.C. in particular is that we have these neighborhoods that were built for white residents. They were brick homes on tree-lined streets, beautiful neighborhoods, beautiful schools, beautiful parks. Those neighborhoods were 100% white in the 1940s because they were designed to be 100% white. But then um, the laws that allowed them to be 100% white were slowly dismantled. And in particular, in 1954, with the Brown v. Board of Education Court decision, the schools were desegregated. So as soon as black people started moving into those neighborhoods and sending their kids to those schools, the neighborhoods, I mean, the white people just left extremely quickly. Between like 1954 and 1958, over half of the white people in the neighborhood where I was raised left. Um, so white flight is not happening um, in the same way anymore. What we're actually seeing now is a white return to those same neighborhoods. So. Um, White people left for the suburbs, raised their families out in the suburbs. But recently, cities have engaged in a number of programs designed to attract white residents back to the city. So that has worked. So now we're seeing white reclamation of those neighborhoods that previously had experienced white flight. All right. Square the circle for us. Where does gentrification fit into this story? Okay, so when white people left these um, middle-class neighborhoods, majority homeowner neighborhoods, black people moved in. The black people that moved in were very much like Mark's grandmother, you know, rising socially, um, attained middle-class status, had good jobs with the government. 
So they built these majority black neighborhoods. Um, and when they first moved in, in the 1950s and through the 1960s, those neighborhoods um, provided a wonderful sense of community, excellent schools, great resources. There were grocery stores and delis and pharmacies and just all kinds of, you know, basically a lively theaters, you know, a lively neighborhood. But over the course of the next few decades, um, as those neighborhoods became solidly, um, almost exclusively African American, they experienced disinvestment, which is mean that which means that both the private sector and the public sector slowly stop investing in those neighborhoods. So what happened in those neighborhoods is the property values did not increase at all. I mean, they only increased according to the rate of inflation between um, 1950 and 2000. So the home that um, Mark's grandmother bought in 1959 barely increased in value you know, for the next 50 years. Um, it was only once those neighborhoods began to experience the influx of white residents that the property values began to increase. This is going back to what we're talking about racial capitalism, where property values are affected by the profit potential, but also the racial composition of the neighborhood. So you, as white people begin, sorry, go ahead. No, no, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I do would like you to direct, I would like to direct your attention, if I might, to uh, the significant uh, analysis in your book to the way in which the carceral system, locking people up for long periods of time, dramatically affects the black community in D.C. and in cities and towns across the country. So to the extent that you could connect those dots for us, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, as the neighborhood became disinvested, that means that um, there, the schools were failing, um, the city was no longer investing in resources, and the city began to enter into, kind of an, into a crisis. We have um, high rates of drug addiction, high rates of crime. And the city officials were saying, you know, we need more drug treatment centers. We need more community resources. We need to invest in our schools. And they also were saying, we need more police to control the rising crime. It's only that last call, the call for more police in prisons that was answered. So, the, so Washington DC at this, in this time of crisis that it began to enter in the 1980s and 1990s um, did receive investment from the state, but that investment was almost exclusively in the form of prisons and policing. So that, what that did is just further devastate these majority black neighborhoods. And this all sets these neighborhoods up to be completely devalued, low prices. And then in the early 21st century, the city decided it wanted to reinvest in the neighborhood by attracting new residents. So these neighborhoods that have been disinvested for decades, um, only experience kind of this positive reinvestment in the 21st century and that coincided with the arrival of white, of white residents. So when the neighborhoods were black, the investments that they received were carceral, meaning policing in prisons. When the neighborhoods began to become white, they began to see investment in resources such as libraries, schools, parks, ice cream shops, taverns, bars, yoga studios, etc. So if there is investment, positive investment in traditionally African-American communities in D.C., and that what goes by the term gentrification uh, takes, takes place and raises property values, is that necessarily uh, disadvantageous for those members of the African-American community who have lived in those neighborhoods for many years, or do they finally have a uh, positive effect <clears throat> and some participation in 
growing wealth. So you would think in, in some cases it works out, but what happens in the majority of cases is, you know, the property values didn't increase for 50 years. So most of those black homeowners that bought the homes in the 1950s and 60s, they eventually ended up selling the home, you know, not for a profit. So they were not able to accumulate wealth for all of that time. And then beginning in the 21st century, they do begin to sell their homes. The, the home values begin to increase slowly. But what happens in DC is, let's say um, you have an African-American family that lives in a home. Actually, I'll give you a story just to, just to round it out. So Clarence Hinton purchased his home in, in the neighborhood where I grew up in Petworth. In 1953, he purchased it for about $15,000. He, he was the first black family on that block and he's a, he's a doctor. Dr. Hinton and his family live in that house for 50 years at, in, at, in around 1998, they sell the house for $200,000. So that's really not, that's just an increase at the rate of inflation. There's not, they didn't really get any profit from that. The second family buys the home from them and sells it for $700,000, which is a reasonable profit. Um, but they lived there for 20 years. And that second family is also black. So now in 2020, an investor comes, buys the home for $700,000, fixes it up, because now the investor has the capital and the resources to invest it and flips it six months later, sells it for $1.5 million. So yes, that home increased in value, but almost all of the extraction of wealth went to that investor, not to the black family that lived there for 20 years and not to the black family that lived there for 50 years. So we see that's a pattern that we see over and over again um, in home sales in majority black neighborhoods in DC. We are speaking with Professor Tanya Maria Golosh Boza. Her new book is Before Gentrification, the Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. In the book, she says, the black community in D.C. is still dealing with the consequences of the decision to invest in policing and prisons instead of schools and community centers. We'll explore that further right after this break. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison and time keeps dragging on This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabaga, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. 
PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build SolarWrite and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. 1.3 million meals provided to over 8,500 people in Franklin and Hampshire counties. The Amherst Survival Center, making sure our neighbors have the food they need. Join the Amherst Survival Center's Hike for Hunger. Sign up now, set a fundraising goal, and come October, hit the trails. Ask friends and family to support your goal and support the Amherst Survival Center's food and nutrition programs. Hike Mount Toby, explore Buffum Falls, hike wherever you like. Bring your people, bring your pup. Sign up at Hike for Hunger at the Amherst Survival Center website. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Professor Tanya Maria Golash Boza, who is the executive director of the University of California's Washington Center. She is also a professor of sociology, longtime professor at the University of California. She has five previous books, and her most recent just published book, Before Gentrification, the Creation of DC's Racial Wealth Gap. I love the way in which you intersperse and weave your personal story as well as the uh, uh, studies about how we have become more and more a nation divided along lines of race and class. And I'm wondering if you would be kind enough to share with us one of those stories. I'm looking at now at page 31 of the book, and perhaps you could set that up for us and read those two short paragraphs. Yes, certainly. This paragraph reflects on my experience um, growing up in a majority Black neighborhood and um, both the joys I shared with um, some of my neighbors as well as the tragedies. When I enrolled in kindergarten at our neighborhood school in 1978, I was one of two white children there. The other white child was my brother Ian. When I was in second grade, I transferred to a new school where there were only a handful of students who were not white. My new school had carpeting, a library full of books, and a beautiful playground. My old school had linoleum floors and a sparse library, and we spent recess walking single file around the block with our teacher. I spent the rest of my childhood taking the city bus from my primarily black neighborhood east of Rock Creek Park to primarily white schools west of the park. I'd get on the bus across, from, across the street from the corner store owned by Mr. Coe where I used to buy Big Mama sausages. We'd ride past the liquor store where Monique and I bought cigarettes for her grandmother and later for ourselves. Then we'd ride past the funeral home where I attended Erica's funeral after she was gunned down in a drive-by shooting. Can you bring us back, if you would please, uh, Professor Golash Boza, to the issue that always in, in, in inter, interfaces with this discussion about uh, the destruction of black communities, and that is the war on drugs. And you include in your book the very famous statement by John Ehrlichman, of course, chief of staff to President Richard Nixon, who said that drugs were public enemy number one. And Ehrlichman at some point confesses, you know what this was really all about? You know, what it's all about, we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or black, blacks, but by getting the public to associate, 
hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily. We could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. What are the consequences? What have been the consequences of that? You know, the issue of crack is something that um, we're just now beginning to reckon with. So um, people that lived through the 1980s in the United States will remember that crack cocaine was this position as public enemy number one. Um, crack mothers, crack babies, crack heads, you know, all of those terms were widely used and sort of crack was positioned as public enemy number one. And what that did is it redirected attention away from all the ways that government was failing um, black urban communities. So all of the, all the problems were blamed on crack, ignoring the fact that the city had not had stopped investing in public schools, that libraries were being closed, that community programs were not being supported, um, that teachers were not being paid enough, right? So all of instead of focusing on all of these problems that you know that were completely solvable with resources, our attention was directed to crack as the problem. And with crack as the problem, then people who sold crack and people who used crack became um, targeted through the criminal justice system. So Washington, D.C. and other cities just spent tremendous resources rounding up people accused of selling crack. And, and, you know, sometimes they would arrest people who were in charge of large scale drug operations. But they also targeted people that really were just peripheral. There's a guy I went to high school with, Donnie Struthers. He was arrested for the first time in his life for selling a small amount of cocaine to an undercover officer. And he was arrested and sentenced to life in prison on conspiracy charges. So yes, crack was detrimental to communities, but the response was absolutely devastating. Uh, hello, Tiny. This is Buzz. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time in D.C. for nine years. I, every month I went down there for a few days. And what I was always struck by was the unwillingness to grant statehood to D.C. And while I was down there reading about what the implications of that are about $3 billion a year because they have only limited taxing authority there, that all the benefits that states get from the federal government are denied to D.C. They uh, lack uh, input in Congress because they have non-voting representatives. So even, I totally embrace the theory that you've been speaking about in terms of the consequence of poverty, capitalism, et cetera, in D.C. But what do you think the implications are of not granting statehood to D.C. with regard to poverty and the other issues, your racism you're speaking about? Yeah, there's a lot. Statehood brings up a lot of issues. But one thing I don't think people always think about is, you know, Washington, D.C., like any other city, is um, heavily Democrat. I mean, when I, when I was in school, I, mean, I just didn't know any Republicans. Like, there's just very few people that live in D.C. that are from D.C. that are Republicans. And that's just kind of the nature of urban areas in general. So we have a, a, a city that's majority Black, almost exclusively Democrat being governed by a body that's almost exclusively white and 50% Republican, 50% Democrat. So even just on the simple political face of it, right, we're not being represented by people who share the same values as us. Um, and in addition to that, the federal government puts, like you said, all kinds of limits on Washington, D.C. 43% of the land mass in D.C. is not taxable. 
Um, the federal government prevents us from putting a commuter tax on residents. So there's, so the city has to be very creative in terms of how it comes up with revenue to operate. And in addition to that, even when we're creative in terms of coming up with revenue, our budget still gets approved by an external body. So um, the, the democratic rights of DC residents are extremely limited and that is because we don't have, we're not, we don't have statehood. I'd like to get your perspective on what happens next or what happens now. You write in your book, Professor, by 1991, Washington, D.C. had the highest homicide rate in the country. The city's response to this tragedy, double the police force. At the end of the 20th century, D.C. had the highest incarceration rate in the world. The capital of the nation had become a world leader in incarceration. What's the status of the incarceral system in D.C. today? And what are the prospects for a vibrant African-American community in the city? Yeah, so we, unfortunately, um, the city is currently experiencing a rise in crime and a rise in fear and crime. So we're not, we're not anywhere near where we were in 1991, but we're starting, we're, we're starting down that path. So the tremendous inequality and the tremendous um, upheaval produced by the COVID-19 pandemic um, has led to a situation in DC where we're now experiencing a rise in crime. And of course, the city's response is unfortunately very similar to what we saw um, in the 1990s. So my hope is that, well, we haven't done it yet. So we haven't completely down, gone down the path of carcerality. The city council just, one of the city council members, Brooke Pinto, just proposed a bill a couple of days ago um, it has a lot of unfortunate provisions in it that really just criminalize um, black people in DC. And I say black people because if you go to court in DC, almost everyone there is black, you know, very few white people or other people in, in courts in DC. Um, one difference is that in the bill, you do see both the criminalization provisions and more support. So city council has come around to realizing that uh, we do also need to support communities but I think we really need to not go down this path of um, just locking up another generation. I think we need to come up with new ways to address um, the very real problems that the city is facing. Um, but carcerality is not, it's just gonna get us back in the same place and just reproduce these cycles across generations. We're gonna leave it there. We've been speaking with Tanya Maria Goash Boza. Professor Boza is the head of the executive director of the University of California's Washington D. Center, Washington DC, professor of sociology. Her new book is Before Gentrification, the Creation of DC's Racial Wealth Gap, which addresses this, this issue in DC and in cities across the country. <clears throat> Excuse me. Professor, thank you so much for your book, for your insights and your time today. Thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure.
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Kara Rintella's interview with police just a few hours after finding her wife's body on their home's basement floor in Granby will take center stage again today at her fourth murder trial. Jurors watched some of the video yesterday in Hampshire Superior Court. Before the video was shown, Judge Francis Flannery instructed the jury they could consider it as evidence. Rintella is accused of killing her wife, Anna Maria Cochran Rintella, at their home in 2010. Some Amherst residents are concerned with the proposed interim leadership of the town's Crest Department. The Crest team was notified the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion, Pamela Nolan, along with Crest Implementation Manager Kat Newman, Police Sergeant Janet Griffin, and Fire Chief Tim Nelson are being put in charge, according to the Gazette. The temporary leadership plan is not sitting well with those who have advocated for an alternative to police to handle certain emergency calls, and there has been some tension with police and resistance to the department, according to some members. The temporary plan comes after Crest Director Earl Miller was put on a paid administrative leave for undisclosed reasons in August. Keeping with the promise she made during her campaign in 2016, East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle will not be seeking re-election. I came in to office looking for more accessibility, transparency, and economic development, and I feel that I've done work in each one. And the next step for East Hampton is to take a good look at itself and decide what's next and how do we use the resources that we've grown over the last six years. La Chapelle's third term as mayor ends in 2025. Plenty of sunshine today, a light breeze, comfortable air, a high of 70 to 74. Mostly clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 40 to 46. Sunny again tomorrow, a high in the low 70s again tomorrow. A mixture of sun and clouds and low 70s on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg returns to the UMass campus with his guitar in one hand and a copy of his new book in the other. Find me, find me at the, lost the UMass Amherst Libraries and the UMass Fine Arts Center present Words and Music, an evening with singer-songwriter and author Stephen Kellogg, Friday, December 22nd at Bowker Auditorium. With his roots-rocking songs and friendly, engaging stage manner, Stephen Kellogg has lit up audiences from coast to coast. In this very special evening at UMass, he'll discuss themes in his new book, Objects in the Mirror, Thoughts on a Perfect Life from an Imperfect Person. He might tell some jokes. He'll definitely play some favorite songs. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Call it a kind of homecoming. Words and Music, an evening with singer-songwriter, author, and UMass alum, Stephen Kellogg. 
Friday, September 22nd, Bowker Auditorium at UMass Amherst. And this is Cool Films with Larry Hutt following our segment on the gentrification of American cities, race, and wealth gaps. Larry Hutt is the Emmy Award-winning filmmaker based in Florence, Massachusetts. Larry, what do you have for us today in terms of reviews, movies you think we should see? Well, two films just showed back-to-back on the American Experience on PBS, and I watched both of them. They were brought to my attention by Michael Caine, who lives here in Northampton, because he was part of the organizing um, for the busing of students in Boston in the 1970s. And he went to a premiere of this film in Boston and told me about it, and I decided to look it up and realized that PBS was showcasing two films back-to-back that are complementary. The first one we're going to talk about is The Busing Battleground. I think all of us here uh, were in Massachusetts at the time, very aware of the busing battleground that was happening in Boston. It goes back to 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, which basically said separate uh, is not equal. And then in 1974, Alexander V. Holmes versus Board of Education. Board of Education is always in trouble. Uh, In 1969, ordered the end of segregation. And then Judge W. Arthur Garrity in 1974 in Boston just said, let's get on with it and let's get these kids integrated in Boston. And that is the background of this story. So if we hear a clip, you'll get a sense of how intense the battle in Boston was. Uh, It was something that was in the newspaper every single day, and there were a couple of names that I heard as a law student back in the 70s that you might remember these names. Louise Day Hicks and Ruth Batson. Louise Day Hicks was the bete noir of the civil rights movement in Boston. She was the head of the school committee. She was against any desegregation. And Ruth Batson was one of the leaders, a black woman, mother, leaders of the movement to improve the schools for black children in Boston. Let's hear a clip from this movie. Good evening. As we all know, in three days, the city of Boston will face one of her greatest challenges, busing. I went up to Southie High. We all knew something was going to happen. It was chaotic. The place was ringed with police. There were truckfuls of cameras. The crowd was so violent. All I could think of was what would happen if I didn't make it to the bus. When I reported to Kevin White on opening day that no black child had been killed, we thought that was a victory. It was the saddest day in Boston's history. Busing will never work in this city. Never. Difficulties over segregation and discrimination exist in every state of the union. In Boston, the neighborhoods are their own little sort of worlds. People from South Boston didn't come into Roxbury. People from Roxbury didn't go into South Boston. There were patterns of racial discrimination everywhere. Black schools were missing basic resources. We felt that if we moved our students to where they were spending the money, we would benefit, and the money went. You can get a sense of how intense this battle was, Bill. It was Indeed, a battle. It was a physical battle. There was a lot of blood spilled. 
And Boston took decades to recover from this yeah, war. Yes, and what this film shows is that at first, the battle seemed to be about whether kids could stay in their own neighborhoods. Why can't these kids just go to their own neighborhood schools, particularly in Southie and Charleston? Which is South Boston. Right. And these kids, I was not aware of this, how poor the white kids were in these communities. Uh, they, in some cases, I think they, were a lot, uh, they had a lot less resources than the black kids in Roxbury and Dorchester. And they did not want their children to be bused across the city. But something else I just and learned. they didn't want to give up their neighborhood schools. And right. I, don't, I don't mean to defend uh, uh, the opponents of busing in Boston, but they had a real sense of community in Southie, for did. better or for worse. They did, and the, so did the black community. And not everybody in the black community was in favor of this because they preferred their kids not to have to get on a long bus ride. At the time, though. In the Boston school system, 85% of the students were being bused anyway. They were getting on a bus in the morning, not necessarily going across, across the city. But what the film points out graphically is how it rapidly became a racial fight. At first, it was a neighborhood community fight. You know, just leave us alone. Let us go to our own schools. But when the black kids start showing up in the schools, white, white mobs form. And then you hear, and the, and the film does not bleep out any of this, then you hear the worst use of the N-word, people uh, making ape-like gestures as, gestures as the kids get off the bus and throwing rocks and breaking windows, and it becomes so ugly, so fast. Now, all of this is in this film is leading up to one famous photograph, an unforgettable photograph. It's all I think about when I think about busing. And do you know what I'm talking about, Bill? I'm waiting to hear. Okay. The photographer's name was Stanley Foreman, and he won a Pulitzer Prize. This is the photograph of a white man, a young man, taking an American flag on a, on a flagpole that he's holding and attempting and actually hitting, stabbing in the stomach a black attorney, Ted Landsmark, on the steps of the state house, not the state house, the uh, government house in Boston. And this picture went around the world, somebody using an American flag to attempt to hurt a black man in a suit, a three-piece suit, coming to work on the steps of this government building. And it sort of, the reason it got so much attention is because of the flag, because there had been many, many violent incidents against black people in Boston over busing. But here, it was that symbol of freedom, of equal opportunity being used against a black man. And here we have January 6th, the same image. But yeah. I've talked to other people who back in 1974 went to high school. Two people we had a conversation over at dinner once at that time. There were platoons of police in every school, around every school. Now, now we're used to having a, a police officer in, a, in high schools for right. you know, because well, of well, violence. Well, then the film points out that actually many of these, of these schools did integrate peacefully. Of course, what made the news were the big protests and, and the violence. But that was enough to set everybody off. And we have protagonists in this film. And this is one of the things that makes it work. Because you have a, the bete noir. You have a Louise Day Hicks, who is just the epitome of a white, um, angry woman who says, this will not stand. And then she manipulates the school committee and gives it so much power she actually operates out of a government office. At one point, 
that same government building, I think it's called Government Square in, in downtown Boston, um, where she puts in the window the uh, initials of the organization that is trying to stop the busing in the government office. Right? Then you have Mayor White, who seems to be feckless. He can't really control anything, can't make anything happen. And then you have Ruth Batson, who is this very dynamic uh, uh, black woman, mother of two kids, who is saying, I don't want my kids to be bused across the city. Of course, nobody does, but we want them to get a good education. And they're not getting a good, a good education in their schools. And then they, when they, the film does a good job of contrasting um, the, the schools. And at one point, they realize, they point out that some of the schools in the uh, poor white neighborhoods are just as bad as the schools in the black neighborhoods. And in some cases, these black kids are being bused to worse schools. Right? So you get the sense that it's not all black and white, that this is a complicated story. And then there's a problem with the film that many people I know who were involved pointed out to me. They end the story in, with this uh, famous photograph I mentioned in the early 80s. But the busing goes on until the 19, late 1990s when they drop it. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They can't control it. And they go back to the same system. And this to the system that the was system in place before, before busing started, before Judge Garrity made his order? They resegregated all of Boston. And one other thing I want to point out about this, and this I think is very relevant to us here in Western Massachusetts. The people in the suburbs were pushing for this because mostly liberal white people in the suburbs, but they were not affected by it until the judge orders that this has to include the suburbs as well, and they start busing kids out to Wellesley, Newton, Brookline, right? So then it doesn't sit Generally so well. white, wealthy. Right. So here, I remember being out in Western Massachusetts and, and cheering for desegregation, but I'm not directly affected by it. And this is one of the big issues that came up in, the, in this battle. Are you directly affected by it? And in, in a few minutes, we're going to have a break, and then we're going to come back, and I want to talk about another film called The Harvest, Integrating Mississippi Schools, which is a completely different situation. And I'll just give you this teaser. In Boston, it was moving children all over the place, miles and miles away. But in this town, in the film The Harvest, uh, in Leland, Mississippi, it's all one school district. One school district, two schools, one for black kids, one for white kids, an entirely different situation. The title of the book, uh, the title of the book, the title of the movie about Boston is? Bussing Battleground. It's on American Experience, the American Experience website. You can watch it for free. And the film you are about to tell us about? It's called The Harvest, Integrating Mississippi Schools. We'll be right back. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo. So there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. 
That's right, there's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. The Amherst Block Party. Arts, culture, a celebration of downtown businesses. Kung Fu, African drums, dancers, jugglers, and acrobats, yo-yos and youth theater, games and prizes, plus two stages, continuous live music, lots of global eats. The Amherst Block Party. Downtown Amherst is one big carnival. Special thanks to Amherst College for their generous sponsorship. Complete details at amherstdowntown.com. Let's do Amherst in style. The Amherst Block Party. This Thursday, 5 to 9. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. film you're going to tell us about now, Larry, is? It's, it's The Harvest, Integrating Mississippi Schools. Uh, and I was just talking about The Busing Battleground. I want to make this interesting point. Um, both films are produced by a team of a black person and a white person. Busing Battleground by Shan Grimberg, who's actually British, and Cindy Radin, uh, who is a black woman. Uh, the Harvest is a kind of film, it's a certain genre of film um, where it's a first-person report by a reporter named Douglas Blackman who grew up in this town, and he's telling his personal story of what it was like to go through the integration process in Leland, Mississippi. But he has a co-producer, Sam Pollard, who is a black man, quite famous, uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize for Slavery by Another Name, which is based on a book, and it's a fantastic film. I highly recommend this, this film about the Jim Crow era in, in the South. So they team up to produce this film about... Again, the title is? It's called The Harvest, Integrating Mississippi Schools. It's about Leland, Mississippi, uh, the graduating class of 1982, high school class of 1982, is the subject. And way, one way it differs from the... Busing Battleground, which is about a variety of communities all over the Boston area. This is one town where there's a black high school and there's a white high school. And the, the orders come down from the various courts that we were just talking about earlier. And in, the city has had some racial problems over the year and some riots. Um, there's, there was a, a black man killed by um, a police officer and there were Black Panthers in town. We had things that were not unusual happening in the, around the civil rights movement in this town in the 60s and 70s. But when the order comes down to So uh, let me just back up yeah. one second. It's the 1960s and yeah. 70s. Yeah. It has been uh, 
15, 20 years since yeah, Brown versus the Board of Education was decided. And these two schools in this town in Mississippi are strictly segregated still. Absolutely. And in fact, the point is made early in the film that it took a long time for Mississippi to come around to the idea that they were actually going to follow the law. And we have a long history in this country of people not following court orders. Andrew Jackson was told by the Supreme Court not to take the Indians out of Georgia, right? And he did it anyway. Uh, Mississippi didn't have any pro trouble ignoring the Supreme Court orders. But they finally get around to it. There's enough pressure in the 70s. And this reporter, Douglas Blackman, is in this class that eventually graduates in 1982. And he goes back to his hometown and he tells this story, and he finds his classmates, the white ones and the black ones. And it's a series of interviews and portraits of these individuals and what they went through in this So town. did integration happen in this Mississippi town? It Was there the same kind of violence that happened okay. in Boston that we just heard about in the movie The, the, Bussing, the, bu bu the Bussing Battleground? No, not, not any violence over this at all. Now what happened, of course, is that a lot of white families, just as they did in Boston, they opened private schools. The parochial schools' enrollments, enrollments went up. But some of the families decided after a while that the private schools weren't as good as the public schools. And they took the kids out of the private schools, put them into the schools. But this film makes a really interesting point, and it's the most emotional part of the film. They became friends in school, as you would hope they would do. But they did not socialize outside of school. You know, they didn't go to the same dances. Uh, they didn't, were not dating. Uh, that was verboten. They could not do it. There was too much social pressure on them to stay apart. They could not play at each other's houses. The students would ask their parents, can so-and-so come over? And they say, that's not a good idea. So now reflecting back on this, these Was kids, that both from the black families talking about yes, white families? The black and families white would say, we're going to get in trouble. And the white families would say, don't do it. And the kids now who are grown up in their 40s, 50s uh, or older, they say, you know, we are, we are still upset about this. And when Douglas Blackman goes back, he's talking to his friends. But this is a very different situation than Boston because it's a small town. Several of the people, of the of black people who become the stars of this film, come back to the town and one becomes the chief of police, one becomes the mayor. Right. They actually run the town now. Right. So the positive results of, the, of, of this are evident in Leland. At the same time, the film points out that the town has resegregated, that the, most of the whites, have, uh, they haven't moved out. They've put their kids in private schools, better private schools, outside of town. Right. Is this a story strictly about race, or does class play a part as well? Well... It's hard to say what the difference is when you cross over in, in the lines. Um, there is a sub-story in The Harvest, the Mississippi Leland uh, film, about a part of town called Strike City, where uh, black families who were involved in a strike against plantation owners in the, in the 50s, 60s, set up their own city. They were uh, blackballed and could not work anywhere. So they became subsistence farmers and lived in basically shacks. And that parts of that city are still there. And that, those, some of those people became, became the leaders later on because they had been able to be, had to be so strong to be self-sufficient. 
So there's a lot of, of layers going on here. But the reason that these two sh films are shown together on the American Experience on PBS, which you can watch online, is because they come to the same conclusion, that in the end, the integration of the students didn't work. That the cities, the towns, the people, particularly from pressure from the white communities, resegregated both Boston and Leland, Mississippi. The busing battleground and the harvest are available. How do we see them out there? They are on the American Experience website. They're also on YouTube. They just came out, and, they're, and they, you can watch them for free. And they, how long are the films? Uh, both films are about two hours, an hour and 47 minutes. And you recommend both? I recommend both, and I recommend seeing them back-to-back -back like I did. Uh, and then you can come to your own conclusions. The Busing Battleground and The Harvest. Correct. Larry Hart, thank you so very much for your insight, for reviewing the films for us, and thank you for your really insightful comments today. Really appreciate it. This has been Cool Films with Larry Hart on Talk the Talk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. You have a tree to prune? Rent a boom lift, a pole saw, a chipper, a log splitter, stump grinder, and to clean up, a mini loader. Whatever the job, chances are TJ's rents the tools and equipment to make it easier, safer, and cheaper. What projects do you want to tackle? Rent the right tools and equipment at TJ's. We'll show you how to use them. You'll get the hang of it in no time. TJ's Rental, Route 202 in South Hadley. Give us a call and fill up your propane tank while you're here. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. On WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And Bill, the recorder a couple days ago had an article written by Julian Mendoza. It was datelined in Greenfield, and I just want to read the beginning of it. Um, archaeologists will ask the permission of a couple hundred property owners to collect 17th century artifacts along the final stretch of the Great Falls Massacre's colonial retreat route within the next two weeks, according to the Battlefield Grant Advisory Committee. The work is part of a nearly decade-long effort to study how and why this particular battle precipitated a shift in the military strategy and the war efforts of indigenous and colonial groups and how those changes contributed to the very foundation of this country. It's a pretty interesting story. It's a little bit of a complicated story and with us to talk about it, fortunately, is Historical Commission from Greenfield member historian Tim Blagg, who also taught history at GCC, and he's a member of that very Battlefield, Battlefield Grant Advisory Committee. And I want to welcome you to the show, and thank you for being here, Tim Blagg. Oh, nice to be here. 
We should note that Tim Blagg, of all people, knows a good story when he sees one. Perhaps you can tell us why. Because he was the editor-in-chief of The Recorder for many years and uh, somebody who's uh, a journalist who's widely respected in this region and beyond. And uh, we're always grateful to talk to Tim Blagg. So, Tim, I, I, first of all, I just acknowledge him. I just read verbatim from the article itself, but I understand that some people don't like the term Great Falls Massacre. They prefer that it be called Battle of Great Falls. Maybe we could just spend a few seconds talking about that. Is that right? Well, it certainly was a massacre in, the, in its opening stages, uh, as, as I'll explain. But, the, uh, but the, then, it was a, then uh, afterward, there was a running battle uh, between uh, the warriors or the indigenous tribes who were represented there who came to the sound of gunfire and that running battle uh, went uh, up uh, through the valleys and swales uh, from the river where the original battle took place uh, and uh, and then went on through Greenfield and south to the so as the militiamen tried to flee back away. So there was there were considerable casualties uh, on that side as well. Well, let's just back up a little bit. Um, uh, we both are really itching to talk to you about this, but I think we just have to start with King Philip's War. Uh, I, is that the starting place? And could you talk to us about that? Absolutely. Now, you know, we're talking here about about 55 years after the Pilgrims landed at, uh, at Plymouth Rock. Uh, this is this is, you know, with the first 50 years of colonization uh, in this area, and uh, and this war started. Uh, there was a variety of political, social, cultural factors that led to the war, but it was probably the bloodiest war in in American history. Uh, it was uh, it, at the end of the war, if you count it up, you could say that uh, the old uh, Roman idea of decimation, uh, one in 10 actually happened here, about one in 10 of all of the uh, military age uh, and capable men in the colonies was killed. Uh, and so pr proportion wise, percentage wise, it was the bloodiest uh, war that this country ever was in. Uh, it was a, uh, an uprising that went on. The, the sides were not as clearly delineated as you might think. There were uh, English colonists and their allies, indigenous allies, uh, fighting against a, a, a variety of tribes that had come together under this uh, uh, Metacomet or King Philip, as he was known, uh, who was a Wampanoag, and, and these uh, the, the battles took place spontaneously all across the region. There were farmhouses that were attacked. There were uh, militia groups who were attacked. There were Indian bands who were attacked. So, so you know, it was it was a bloody thing. Took to, uh, lasted for two or three years, uh, and so it was it was quite a, a terrible event for everybody. And neighbors were fighting neighbors. There were accounts of people during a battle calling out to somebody on the other side as, and recognizing them by name because they had been uh, living next to each other prior to the war. And it was right here. And I, and I believe that King Philip was, in fact, the son of Massasoit, a name that many of us are really quite familiar with. Bill, you wanted to... Uh... To talk to Tim. Yeah, Tim, go back to the story, if you would, please. Why is this a story today? Why is it uh, big news in the recorder? What's happening? Well, what's going on right now is that the the uh, National Park Service has this battlefield protection program, and they turned their attention to this battlefield. And the idea is to 
delineate the boundaries of this battlefield, uh, uh, which is very difficult to do today, unlike some of the other battlefields in the country, because the geography of this whole area has changed radically since this since these, this battle took place. Which was uh, when? Uh, 1676. The battle took place uh, in May of 17, uh, 1676, uh, about a, a year after the war itself started. Uh, and it, it, the, the rough uh, idea of it was there were, uh, the Great Falls was a place where the Connecticut River uh, met the, the Falls River, the Fall River. And this was a uh, age old, millennia old fishing spot uh, where people would come to catch fish, dry them, uh, smoke them and so forth to, to sustain them through the winter. And this is now an effort to collect the artifacts from this centuries-old battle, and private homeowners are being asked to allow their lands to be searched. I want to hear more about that. Okay, so the idea is really not so much to collect artifacts as is to delineate the boundaries of the battle. And by using artifacts that are found, and in this case, it's been mostly musket balls that have been found all over the area, and, and scattered in clusters that tell you that there was a battle that took place, a skirmish that took place at that point. And by using metal detectors, for the most part, they've been able to find a great number of musket balls of various sorts. Both sides were using firearms. Uh, and so, in fact, uh, on the riverbank where the original attack took place, there were at least a couple of uh, forges where they were casting musket balls uh, for use by the indigenous warriors. Uh, so both sides were using muskets, and these balls were are different calibers were found all through this area. And by following these trails of musket balls, they can be able to figure out where exactly the retreat went through Greenfield. So historian, so that's no, yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. Go well, ahead. I just wanted to ask you about this um, battleground grant advisory committee. I understand that there's a number of municipalities involved in in that you are a member of that as an historian and as a member of the Greenfield Historical Commission. Um, and you've been involved in this search to delineate the area by locating artifacts such as musket balls for some time now. That's Could right. you tell us about That's the, right. the committee, about the committee has been working about 10 years on this. And, and, and by the way, I should say, if anybody's interested in the, in more information about this, the, the report, that's been compiled so far is available online through the, the Montague Historical Commission website, as well as the Montague Town website. And you can pick the link up there and see the report that they've compiled so far, which is an amazingly detailed and a very, very uh, good report that's, that's, that's they've done so far. Tim Black, at the risk of asking a stupid question, when they have when you do find the musket balls or the the collection of them, do they stay in the ground there, or are they removed and taken to a museum or something like that, or put they're on a wall? Removed, they're removed and studied. Uh, in fact, and uh, I'm not sure it, on this particular battlefield, but certainly in some battlefields, they've actually found musket balls with the imprint of textiles on them, where the the ball actually hit somebody, uh, and it was imprinted by the the cloth that they were wearing. And so they can tell that that musket ball actually hit something before it fell into the ground. 
and uh, and so those balls have been collected. They're actually right now in the possession of the uh, Heritage Consultants, which is the archaeological uh, outfit that's been contracted uh, by the by the Advisory Commission to do this work. Uh, they're located in Connecticut, and uh, they they've got the balls in their possession. And I'm not quite sure where they eventually, I think eventually they will end up in local museums. Well, again, according to the Recorder article by uh, Julian Mendoza, there's still three, three and a half square miles of the six and a half square mile projected battlefield that remain to be surveyed. That more than eight, 600 artifacts have been recovered, uh, over 350 acres, and there's a whole lot more work to do. Do I have that right? Is the article accurate? That is correct, and the work will be done. The, the main thrust of the article is to, to tell landowners in Greenfield that they are, were going to be contacted by mail, email, and maybe in, by in person to get permission to, for these uh, metal detectorists to go onto their property and search for musket balls. Now, these people that are being contracted to do that are very experienced in this, and so they're not, they're not going to be distracted by other items that they might find in the ground. The idea is that they, if they find what they think is a musket ball, they will then dig it up using a very uh, non-destructive method. It won't be one of these big archeological digs or anything like that. It would simply be a hole in the ground. They would find the ball, retrieve it, then fill the hole in and, and mark the location on the GPS so they would know exactly where it was. How deep in the ground are these musket balls after these many hundreds of years? Uh, eight, 10 inches, uh, usually not much deeper than that. Uh, you know, of course it varies because again, going back to this original, the whole, the whole geography, of this area has changed so radically since 1676. So the Barton Cove, for example, which is a huge body of water in Montague was dry land at this time. It was farmed and there was a village there. Uh, and that's been flooded by the, the raising of the dam, the local dam, in order to accommodate the canals. Uh, and, and the whole center of Greenfield has uh, actually been dug out uh, and hundreds of tons of dirt removed. So that there's a lot of changes that have been taking place. So it's, it's hard, if you look at the, lo- the descriptions that took place at the time, it's really hard to put those together with today's uh, landscape. So... A member of the Battlefield Grant Advisory Committee, uh, Tim Black, there's about an $80,000 grant that's being given by the National Park Service, as you alluded to earlier, uh, in its uh, American Battlefield Protection Program. Why is it important for us to delineate where these battles and skirmishes took place? Why is it important for us to know about it now in 2023? Well, I mean, it's part of our history, and it's something that that I think people should know about. I think the average person probably has never heard of King Philip's War, uh, despite its dramatic impact on on the, the times. Uh, the colonies were very small; they were very uh, sparsely populated. But there was this huge influx of immigrants coming from Europe, coming into this area as well as other areas in the country, and they changed the dynamic between the, the indigenous peoples, uh, which is one of the reasons for the war. And, and as a result of this, this war, uh, the status of those people who were here before the colonists arrived was radically changed. Uh, many of them were dis- displaced. Many of, some of them were enslaved. 
there was a whole change in the in the tenor of their existence. It had been a cooperative existence in in most part up to that time. Uh, and and as we as you know from the the stories of the early settlers, and so that this was a major change in the in the tenor of the of their relationship, and it carried on from there. Uh, they they went from being cooperative and helpful to in in many cases to being uh, enemies. We are talking with historian Tim Black. We're going to continue that conversation. This is really fascinating. Right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg returns to the UMass campus with his guitar in one hand and a copy of his new book in the other. Find me, find me at the lost and found. The UMass Amherst Libraries and the UMass Fine Arts Center present Words and Music, an evening with singer-songwriter and author Stephen Kellogg. Friday, December 22nd at Bowker Auditorium. With his roots-rocking songs and friendly, engaging stage manner, Stephen Kellogg has lit up audiences from coast to coast. In this very special evening at UMass, he'll discuss themes in his new book, Objects in the Mirror, Thoughts on a Perfect Life from an Imperfect Person. He might tell some jokes. He'll definitely play some favorite songs. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Call it a kind of homecoming. Words and Music, an evening with singer-songwriter, author, and UMass alum, Stephen Kellogg. Friday, September 22nd, Bowker Auditorium at UMass Amherst. 1.3 million meals provided to over 8,500 people in Franklin and Hampshire counties. The Amherst Survival Center, making sure our neighbors have the food they need. Join the Amherst Survival Center's Hike for Hunger. Sign up now, set a fundraising goal, and come October, hit the trails. Ask friends and family to support your goal and support the Amherst Survival Center's food and nutrition programs. Hike Mount Toby, explore Buffum Falls, hike wherever you like. Bring your people, bring your pup. Sign up at Hike for Hunger at the Amherst Survival Center website. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back continuing our conversation with Greenfield Historical Commission member Tim Blagg, who also is a member of the, uh, the uh, multi-municipal uh, Battlefield Grant Advisory Committee. And Bill, during the break, you were just asking, can we go back to basics a little bit? Yeah, I wanted a remedial lesson from you, Tim Blagg. There's a great battle that happens at Great Falls. Who's fighting whom and who is trying to get what and why? Okay, so King Philip or, or uh, uh, Metacomet was one of the chief cessations of the, uh, the Wampanoag. And, and those people originally had been very uh, supportive of the original colonists. And one of the reasons for that is that this is all on the tales of an enormous pandemic that had struck this country in the wake of the early explorers. They were the people who lived here were, 
were exposed to European diseases, smallpox, measles, which killed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And so these were the survivors living in some cases in, in villages that were full of bones. Uh, and they were also looking for allies to fight their traditional enemies, the Iroquois, who had come, would come over from, uh, from New York and, and raid here, and so they needed uh, allies. There was a lot of trading going on of firearms, which is why both sides had firearms. You asked that question. One of the early trade items was a special uh, weapon that was built by the Dutch, the French, and the English to trade to the local tribes uh, so they could have firearms as well. And so uh, these, the, when uh, Medicom and these other people up, rose up, they were trying to basically drive the Europeans out of the country. They wanted them gone. Uh, there, was, there were thousands pouring in through Boston and, and, and Salem, and, and they were taking over. They were, they were putting fences up. They were taking over property. They were killing the local uh, wildlife. They were doing all sorts of stuff, and they basically had had it. And the, and the Wampanoag had a special economic place as well because they produced wampum which was the currency of the time. There was very little actual money in this in the colonies, and they used the, the, the uh, local equivalent, which was wampum, which is made from seashells that were found along the, the coast south of Boston and in Rhode Island. And so the, all of these things came together. There was a general uprising uh, from a number of different tribes, and, and they were basically wanted to drive the English out. And, uh, and so that was, the, that was the genesis. During that, that war, there was a number of battles. Some of them were, were uh, uh, ambushes uh, of, of settlers and, and the militia. Some were ambushes of uh, indigenous people by the militia, as was the case in, in this case. It was an ambush put together uh, to attack this fishing place where there was a bunch of people uh, gathered. And as it, this village that was attacked at dawn was uh, women, children, old men, young men who were fishing and drying fish. And the, uh, there was a number of camps along the river. And once that original attack, which was a massacre, uh, took place, then the warriors from all up and down the river came to the came along and, and started to attack back. And that was the running battle in which Captain Turner himself, who was the leader, was killed uh, and in Greenfield. And this battle flowed on up. A lot of the settlers were on, were on horseback. And so they were riding up and they were being attacked and ambushed as they, as they retreated south. So that was who was fighting whom and why. Uh, it's an incredible story, and, it, and it's a complicated story. But um, So here we have a couple hundred property owners are going to be asked to grant their permission for this um, search to continue, looking for artifacts which will disclose what the area is. For those of us who are a little bit familiar with Greenfield, we're talking about the areas near Interstate 91 where the, the Franklin County Fairgrounds on Petty Plain Road, Poet Seat Tower, the White Ash uh, Swamp by the French King Highway, I understand, Tim, that another reason why it's, this is considered to be such an important survey and why this grant happened is because these battles were happening throughout New England, but this one was particularly important. Is, do, I, do I have that right? 
Yes, it was. It was a very, very important battle because it was a, uh, first of all, the number of people that were involved, the number of people that were killed, uh, and, and it was a, a body blow to the indigenous people because so many people were killed in that initial attack, that ambush, uh, and as well as the fact that they were in the process of gathering food for the winter, and so that was stopped. Uh, and so there was a lot of people went hungry as a result of that battle. Do you think that the relationship between the colonists, the settlers, the quote-unquote pioneers, and the indigenous people in this country, do you think it was defined in part by uh, what we now call the Battle of the Great Falls? Well, certainly it was defined in part by, the, by King Philip's War. Uh, because, uh, as I said, there had been a fairly cooperative situation prior to that, uh, and 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 a lot of it was just by by the nature of, of the situation, uh, by these by these tribes that were some of them were on their last few people, uh, and so they really were looking for help, and the colonists were totally ignorant about the local conditions. They needed help. Uh, they came prepared to grow wheat, for example, which doesn't, doesn't grow very well here. And so they, they were introduced to the idea of growing corn, corn uh, and how to grow corn. And, and that was a major change in, in their ability to survive. So there was a whole bunch of things that were going on in a cooperative nature. And then there was, there was the Pequot War, which was an earlier, smaller war uh, farther south. And then there was this war, uh, and, and they were basically uh attempts to drive them out by the way the northern part of this war was was a victory by indigenous people the people in maine signed a treaty which gave the indigenous tribes everything they asked for in terms of rent for their for their property that had been taken and so forth uh, that treaty un uh, unfortunately was was as, as you said earlier we have a history in this country of ignoring laws and treaties and that was ignored in the long run. But they actually in northern in Maine, uh, the the colonists caved in and said, "Yeah, whatever you want." Uh, Tim, and so it was not an overall overall victory for them. Tim Black, following up on ignoring uh, people and nations in our history, I'm wondering whether there are indigenous people who are involved with the historical commission that you serve on in terms of the work it is doing around these very important events and battles involving indigenous nations. Oh, in fact, in fact, the Battlefield Commission itself has members from four different tribes uh, who are regular seated members of the, and a number of the people who also are in, associated with the, with the commission uh, represent those, those tribes and, uh, and participate uh, in, all of, in all of what I've been talking about. So yes, it is a, it is an uh, absolutely uh, uh, in, uh, inclusive organization, and it is such an important inquiry. And uh, it is I'm so grateful to the uh, Historical Commission of Greenfield, to the Battlefield Grant Advisory Committee, and to the National Park Service for continuing to find out more about what was for this region and maybe for this nation an incredibly important time in our development. Tim Blagg, if people want to find out more about this. Where can they go? Okay, so if they want to see the report, as I said, the report so far is, is a tremendous 
report that's been done. It's available on the Montague Historical Commission website as well as the Montague Town website. If anybody wants to volunteer to help in this effort in Greenfield, uh, they could contact me. Uh, I'll give my uh, email, which is tblag at comcast.net, and they can email me. I'm maintaining a, a, a database of people in town who are uh, have volunteered to help with this effort as the archaeologists move through getting permission. So in some cases, they need people to go and help them uh, make contact with local landowners. And for those who don't know, Blag is, it's Tim, T-I-M, B-L-A-G-G. There's a wasted it's, G it's in actually, the name Blag. It's, it's T-Blag. It's T-Blag. T-Blag, oh, not Tim Blag. Thank T you. T-Blag, uh, yeah, Tim Blag gets me, gets somebody in Arkansas. But, uh, <laughs> and I get a lot of his email, so uh, go mule riders. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really important work, and we are so glad that you're doing it. We're going to take a break. We will be back. We're going to be talking about the Justice Department's lawsuit against Google right after this. Took away our ways of life. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Kara Rintella's interview with police just a few hours after finding her wife's body on their home's basement floor in Granby will take center stage again today at her fourth murder trial. Jurors watched some of the video yesterday in Hampshire Superior Court. Before the video was shown, Judge Francis Flannery instructed the jury they could consider it as evidence. Rintella is accused of killing her wife, Anna Maria Cochran Rintella, at their home in 2010. Some Amherst residents are concerned with the proposed interim leadership of the town's Crest Department. The Crest team was notified the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion, Pamela Nolan, along with Crest Implementation Manager Kat Newman, Police Sergeant Janet Griffin, and Fire Chief Tim Nelson are being put in charge, according to the Gazette. The temporary leadership plan is not sitting well with those who have advocated for an alternative to police to handle certain emergency calls, and there has been some tension with police and resistance to the department, according to some members. The temporary plan comes after Crest Director Earl Miller was put on a paid administrative leave for undisclosed reasons in August. Keeping with the promise she made during her campaign in 2016, East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle will not be seeking re-election. I came in to office looking for more accessibility, transparency, and economic development, and I feel that I've done work in each one. And the next step for East Hampton is to take a good look at itself and decide what's next and how do we use the resources that we've grown over the last six years. La Chapelle's third term as mayor ends in 2025. Plenty of sunshine today, a light breeze, comfortable air, a high of 70 to 74. Mostly clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 40 to 46. Sunny again tomorrow, a high in the low 70s again tomorrow. A mixture of sun and clouds and low 70s on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, 
you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And welcome back. We are uh, speaking um, about a major antitrust uh, lawsuit, a trial that has begun. Um, its Department of Justice is, uh, has brought a suit against Google, claiming that um, Google has engaged in um, anti-competitive uh, actions that have damaged uh, consumers and um, have attempted to uh, place uh, Google in the position of a monopoly that has unfair competitive advantages over others um, in uh, disagreement with the contention by the Department of Justice is the National Taxpayers Union, the president of which is Pete Sepp, uh, who has uh, issued a statement and come out strongly against the Department of Justice's decision to bring this antitrust lawsuit against Google. And uh, Pete Sepp is here with us uh, on Talk to Talk. Uh, Hello, Pete. Hello. How are you this morning? Just fine. Thank you for joining us, Pete. So um, you have, uh, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about the National Taxpayers Union. Sure. My organization was founded back in 1969 to work for lower, fairer, simpler taxes, less wasteful government spending, taxpayer rights at all levels, and accountability from public officials. We have a great connection to Massachusetts. Uh, We worked with Barbara Anderson and her team in helping to gin up support for Prop 2.5 back in 1980. Barbara later served on our board, and uh, we're very proud of that connection. Why is the National Taxpayers Union opposed to the um, enforcement of antitrust laws, in this case, against Google? 
We're opposed to the heavy-handed, excessive enforcement of antitrust laws for a number of reasons. Taxpayers really have a big stake here. When governments lean too hard on the private sector with edicts to break up companies or fine companies for what they term to be anti-competitive behavior, they are distorting the way markets work. When that happens, shareholders lose money. And here we're talking about millions of shareholders who have a stake in the way that the tech industry works. We're also talking about governments losing money when economic activity declines, when innovation declines that helps governments use their money more efficiently for taxpayers. We certainly wouldn't have gotten things like cloud data storage or online applications to provide services from government development. We've gotten that from private sector development. Governments adopt that technology. They run more efficiently. Also, the one targeted sector here involving Google and the tech sector at large is not the limits of the government's activity. One tool that they hone in a given area can be used in another area. Increased antitrust enforcement activity when it's this heavy handed, when the government is making dramatic, drastic arguments, not only harms the one company that's under the government's microscope, it harms lots of different companies. So, Pete, this so, is this is Dan. I, I want to ask you uh, about previous uh, antitrust cases and examples of how they actually have been successful. I mean, we could go back to Standard Oil, but I won't. But we could just talk about AT&T. You can see the breakup of AT&T, and that's actually unleashed multiple companies uh, that eventually competed in the markets. They created massive amount of innovation, and consumers actually benefited from this. So yeah. tell me why this is so different. This is different for several reasons. First of all, we're not proving consumer harm through the government's case as strongly as we were able to in the AT&T case. A stagnation was occurring when AT&T was broken up. There wasn't the kind of innovation in services that you see in today's tech sector with companies ranging from Microsoft to Amazon to Apple to Google. So that's one problem. Another problem is consumers are getting Google services for free. It's kind of difficult to prove that consumers are being somehow defrauded or they're being charged high prices for a product that they access only uh, for the exchange of their data. I mean, it's not right. for free, really. That's they're exchanging right. their data in but order to not. have that access. So, I mean, Google does have That's that, but true. but Google does but also. Not yeah. Go they're ahead. Not paying, and one thing that uh, comes through very clearly in polling, and this was a poll we conducted uh, among New Hampshire voters, is the concern that if the government leans too hard here, if they insist on a drastic solution like a breakup as opposed to a fine. Uh, we could very well see uh, Google charging for search. Uh, that would be a step in the wrong direction. Mm. I think another important thing here to remember is that the court has already thrown out four of the seven central contentions that the Department of Justice, along with some 40 state attorneys general, have made in this case. 
One of them was basically for the benefit of competitors, and that's a concern of ours with antitrust law. If you're not going to focus really strongly on consumers and instead you're bringing this lawsuit for the primary benefit of competitors, well, that's just billionaires getting the government to sue other billionaires. Taxpayers shouldn't have a role in that. That's a role for the private courts to deal with. And the judge in this case, Amit Mehta, saw through some of these arguments from the likes of Yelp and Travelocity, who were basically getting the government to do their bidding and saying that, you know, our search results aren't prioritized well enough in Google's hierarchy, and we think that's unfair competition. Uh, no, it isn't. Uh, retail establishments do that all the time. So at least we've narrowed the case now to matters that will be decided and debated on the merits for the next several weeks in this trial. Is the, is the National Taxpayers Union directly involved in the case? No, we have not uh, filed any friend of the court briefs in the case. Uh, we may very well uh, do so if we can find an argument that we can uniquely make and uniquely contribute to in antitrust cases. Uh, this is the important thing I'd like to mention, too. To us, this is not about Google itself. This is about the application of antitrust powers. When Microsoft was being sued in the late 1990s, we said, be careful about how you do this. Uh, the end result in the Microsoft case was, of course, a settlement with uh, the government, but uh, that was thrown out on procedural grounds. At that time, we said, be careful to prove consumer harm rather than harm to competitors, which uh, is really just cronyism. And, and in fact, we had that similar dynamic back then, the likes of Sun and Oracle, we're egging the government on to make outlandish arguments. The eventual settlement was something that was a little more focused. So, Pete Sepp, let me let me ask you this. This is Bill Newman. I, I want to ask you about the National Taxpayers Union, known, I think correctly, as a very conservative organization. You oppose the estate tax. You favor the line item veto. You favored in the national sale, national sales tax. Um, and you, you favor deregulation, it goes on and on. Uh, Barbara Anderson, of course, an extremely conservative spokesperson, anti-tax warrior uh, in Massachusetts, uh, famous for the two and fight over two and a half. What I don't understand is this. Uh, Google is, the, in essence, a private company that functions very much like a government. It has essentially public utility functions. It is enormously powerful. It is enormously rich. And it is, the government would say, very much all about consumers. And for an organization that says, we are anti-government, why are you so in favor of a huge technology company essentially being able to dictate the market? Well, first, I don't think Google is necessarily going to dictate the market much longer. In fact, you have Amazon, you have Facebook, you have TikTok now getting into areas that Google was once dominant in. We also have to remember Google has not been the dominant player in this market for more than about 12, 14 years. Yahoo was the dominant player 
prior to that point in time. I also am very worried when governments throw their power around and effectively challenge our own competitive position around the world. It's no secret that companies abroad like TikTok in China would love to see our own companies basically kneecapped by either regulations or high taxes. Monopolies, uh, and I'm not sure that Google can be called that in the sense that it controls a market and its prices. Uh, I, I don't think that they necessarily last very long. And in fact, uh, when you look at uh, the Schwinn bicycle case, the brown shoe case, the IBM case, many of the government's arguments against these companies get made in an environment that is constantly shifting with competition. And by the time they bring their case, make their complaint and pursue the companies, the market has already changed. Okay, I Pete, think that that's what's happening here. President Pete Sepp of the National Taxpayers Union uh, we're going to take a break. We're talking about the Justice Department's civil antitrust suit, which was filed in 2020 against Google for monopolizing search and uh, browser uh, and advertising. We're going to come back and talk with Pete some more right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com family. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people
The great tradition of the Old Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival returns September 23rd and 24th. Come brighten your home or wardrobe. Choose from affordable works by over 100 artisans in the beautiful village of Old Deerfield. But don't just take my word for it. Get the details at deerfield-craft.org. Come celebrate a bright new fall season. Admission $5, children 12 and under free. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. We continue our conversation with Pete Sepp, who is the uh, president of the National Taxpayers Union, a conservative organization. I want to ask you about what the Justice Department says. We've been talking to Pete Sepp about the antitrust case brought by the Department of Justice uh, against uh, Google. Um, Here's the quote from the initial press release. Today, the Justice Department, along with the Attorney Generals of California, Colorado, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Tennessee, and Virginia, filed a civil antitrust suit against Google for monopolizing multiple digital advertising technology products, all in violation of Sections 1 and 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And you say, nope, Google's not doing any of those things. Google does not have a monopoly, and it should not uh, be broken up or somehow be cabined in. What do you say to these specific allegations the DOJ has made? Okay, so this DOJ news release uh, that um, you just read from, is that concerning the case that is currently in court? Uh, There have been additional cases filed over specific parts of Google's Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was all part of one. That was the, uh, you're right. That's the 2023, January 2023 release. I thought it was part of this case. No. No, that's a different case, but uh, there are similar themes going through many of them. Uh, The themes are generally one tying. Uh, In other words, is there a practice here where Google is essentially requiring its products or services to be preloaded on devices where consumers can't change them? There's also the argument of inside dealing. Now, that's a central one in the current case that's under trial right now, namely that the agreements that Google made with Apple, for example, to preload its search engine on its devices were illegal. Uh, Google is saying, well, it was a private agreement between Apple and us. Um, Apple is saying, we thought Google's search engine was the best one to preload. The government is saying, no, that's an illegal collusion. And uh, it's an attempt at monopolization. Uh, The government has roughly three more weeks to make its case, a little more than that, actually. Google then gets its shot uh, at uh, its defense in October. And um, may the better party win. So so explain this to us. From the point of view of the very conservative National Taxpayers Union, what is it you're scared about? What is it that you don't want to have happen? that there will be spillover effects 
with the government will be emboldened to sue other companies for other practices that it deems monopolistic but don't really necessarily harm consumers, that taxpayer resources are going to be diverted to these cases when there are other functions that state and federal attorneys general need to use uh, their offices for, and that there will be a chilling effect on the overall economy and our competitiveness abroad, where foreign companies uh, who are not under these constraints of lawsuits will pick up the business, will fill those gaps, and hurt us economically. I think in the end, when, when you take a look at these lawsuits, sure, there are justifiable complaints of anti-competitive behavior, but government needs to use these tools like scalpels rather than chainsaws. They've got to be careful because we have a lot of other economic headwinds as well as this one from taxes that will go up in 2025 because of expiring laws, from inflation, from supply chain problems. These are all important factors that are already working against consumers and businesses and taxpayers. We got to be sure that we're not adding another one on top of it. Pete Sepp, is there any circumstance in which you think the DOJ bringing antitrust lawsuits against individual companies is appropriate? Sure, absolutely. When consumer fraud is taking place, when you're doing deceptive advertising practices, when you're making consumers pay for a service that you know they can't get anywhere else, when you're engaging in mergers that will effectively shut out competition forever through vertical integration, those are important questions that antitrust can be used for. Are you concerned about Google being broken up? Is that what you're trying to do? Say Google should remain a huge company, a $1.7 trillion market cap company, and it should just get bigger and bigger and doesn't matter what its market influence is? I mean, really? No. No, I think the market should actually determine how big Google gets, and they always have determined how big companies get when they get uh, sluggish when they fail to innovate, when they fail to serve their consumers, when they let down their investors, the money flees them quickly, and they are no longer in a dominant position in a market. That has happened time after time through history. I have heard this argument, well, this time it's different because it's so big and it's tech and uh, normal antitrust and competitive principles don't apply here. Bunk. History has shown that even in the tech space, this happens. Again, Yahoo was the dominant search engine, uh, comprising almost 70% of the market barely 15 years ago. MySpace, well, it was feared uh, around that time, would corner the social media market. The New York Times and the Washington Post were fretting that the government needs to step in. Who has ever heard or used MySpace uh, nowadays? doesn't exist. This Pete, is a dynamic, evolving market. Pete Sepp, we really only have about 30 seconds for you to answer this, but the case is just unfolding. We're just learning the facts in trial. Uh, is there any facts that you think could change the National Taxpayer well, Union's position? Facts could come out, certainly. We always evaluate the facts of cases as they progress. 
I certainly hope that uh, the narrowing of this case will allow a more rational explanation of those facts. Uh, The government was already way out of bounds. We have been speaking with President Pete Sapp of the National Taxpayers Union about the uh, DOJ's antitrust lawsuit against Google. Thank you for joining us on Talk to Talk. Thank you, Pete, for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow. My pleasure. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. My name is Joanne Vanine. I am a CASA worker, court-appointed special advocate for the organization Friends of Children. I first got involved with the CASA program back in 2004. I was still full-time employed at that time as the uh, dean of students at UMass Amherst. The case that inspires me relates to a young man. There were issues of physical abuse. There were issues of drug abuse. Through the advocacy work that I did, this young man was placed with a family in Springfield. It was a rocky start. But the good news is that this foster family stepped up and said that they would adopt him. Almost immediately, I began to see the change in him in terms of his own confidence in himself, which clearly derived from a sense of security. And that also was evidenced in the way he performed in school. The really happy ending to this is I got a text message saying to me, look at my report card, and he is on the honor roll. Learn more about becoming a CASA advocate by visiting Friends of Children's offices on Route 9 in Hadley or going to friendsofchildreninc.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, whmp.com.